Because until I did that, nothing was going to grow there. It just wasn't. It wasn't going to be healthy. And in our churches and in our organizations, there are people Mm. who are defecating in your culture and it's toxic. Mm -hmm. And here's the challenge is for a long time as leaders, this is what I realized in this moment, digging out all this dirt in the garden. I was like, what we do is we do what I do. I'm just going to pull out the little pieces. I'm going to deal with the symptoms. I'll pull it out. I'll pull it out. I'll pull it out. I'll ignore it. I'll pull it out. But I'm not going to do anything about the cat. And I'm not realizing that everything is now toxic. And the only way some for sometimes for us to deal with this and to plant anything good there is a total overhaul of maybe systems, maybe people, or maybe, maybe programs before I plant seed there. Because the fruit that we're, that we're creating, even if we're like, oh, look, it's bearing fruit is actually, it might actually be toxic. And that's why we can get ministries and people and apostolates and businesses that seem to do great work that are profitable, that bear fruit. And then years from now, we find out it was toxic. And some of the fruit's still good, but what often happens? We realize that that was actually more destructive. And we hear stories about the about that organization or that, that company or that ministry. We're like, wow, there was some bad stuff happening. Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are power for impact. Hello and welcome back. My name is Ron Huntley, and you have just tuned in to the Leadership Podcast. We do this podcast to help church leaders, business leaders, people of goodwill try to be the best leaders they can be. You know, the call that God's put on my life, I just desire to make people great. And the way I go about doing that is deep dive coaching with Catholic leaders and their teams. I just really believe that the local parish is a place that should be transforming ordinary people into extraordinary people, making people great supernaturally with the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so thank you for tuning in. Every conversation I have is designed to help you enter into a conversation. So share it, share it with friends, share it with with people in your parish. Do a book study, do a a listening group with a podcast or the YouTube stuff. Uh, And let's, let's have conversations that are meaningful that are focused on Christ, that are focused on leadership, no matter where your leadership is. Today, I'm blessed to have Joel Stepanek with me. Joel is with Life Teen. He's the Vice President of Parish Services. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, Ron. It's really good to share some time with you. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Tell, tell our listeners, because I know not everybody will know what Life Teen is. Life Teen is an amazing movement, but I'd love to hear you describe it in your words. I'm happy to. So Life Teen is a... Eucharistic and Marian-centered youth ministry movement that is found in over 24 countries around the world and hopefully continues to grow by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we believe at Life Teen that when a young person encounters Jesus Christ as the beauty of the Catholic faith, they're transformed and their transformation makes them change agents and they're going to change their parish, their community, and ultimately our culture. So what we do is we're innovative in everything so that young people can become disciples and ultimately evangelists. It's a good work. It's a worthy work. And it's a work we've been blessed to do since 1985. And that is just as long as I have been around on this planet. I don't remind some of our uh, my older coworkers about that, but it's been a gift to be able to serve this long and to be a part of this movement right now and in this moment in history. That's so cool. Uh, was it a part of your conversion or deeper conversion? Tell me a little bit about your story. 
it was a part of my deeper conversion. We had a life teen ministry at my parish and I grew up, as you talk about parishes being places where people are transformed, I was mm-hmm. transformed at my home parish. I grew up in a Catholic household with a dad who was very philosophical and had a wonderful um, practical and rational mind, but it was a faithful man. And my mom also very uh faithful, but almost like mystical, really unique combination of two parents and led to a lot of great conversations. But it wasn't until high school and being able to be in a community of other young people and to see other adults who were echoing the things my parents were saying um, and having this space to grow into my faith as something Mm -hmm. that was a choice I made. I want to live this. And at some point, everybody has to do that. Um, And I'm not just going to do this because my, my mom and dad say I should do it. It was in that community that I did have a deeper conversion and came to know who Jesus was, particularly through the Eucharist. And that was a great gift to me. Uh, the first deeper conversion you know, of many deeper conversions that right? we all have. Yeah. It's not a one and done, is it? I mean, it'd be no, nice. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> prunes those branches that bear fruit, so they bear even more fruit. And Without and, a doubt. Uh, yeah. Continued revelation. That's why it's such a journey, such a blessing to walk with God the best we can and, and to, to lean in. That is, that is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and isn't it a formative time too, when we're young, I, I remember growing up in the church, very faithful to going to church. Uh, wasn't my favorite place to be necessarily a very active boy. Mm-hmm. I love to be moving all the time. And so sitting still and paying attention was hard in school. It was hard in church. <laughs> it was a challenge for me. Love playing sports. Uh, however, um, I longed to be like, I remember moving from Halifax to Bedford and I heard about this wonderful youth group that was in Bedford. I was so excited to be a part of it. And when I got there, it disbanded. And so I, I, oh no. Yeah. I grew up in a church and never had an experience of vibrant youth group. Now, with that said, thankfully, uh, net ministries was something I was exposed Mm -hmm. to and, Great ministry. And, uh, yeah. Curcio with the local challenge. Those things had a huge impact in my life, probably around the same time that you yeah, were yeah. experiencing life teen. And so, you know, as parishes, you know, it's hard. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of people, good Christians leave the Catholic church that didn't have anything going for youth because they were afraid for their kids. And if the mm-hmm. local parish doesn't have anything for parents, kids, the ki- their kids are their primary asset. Like they're their most precious asset. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen them leave for other traditions and it just breaks my heart when, when we don't attend to, to young people. And I know it's hard. Like it's, it's not an easy thing to wrap our heads around. So I'm really grateful for Life Teen, for their vision, for their ability and willingness and desire to partner with local parishes to make them great, to give them an outlet and a way and a means and the support mm-hmm. to, to reach young people. Yeah, what you do is important. So you're the vice president of parish services. So what's cool is, I'm get, well, and maybe you did. Did you get hired as the vice president? I did not. I was hired as the life support coordinator. So over 10 years ago, I had a moment of discernment as a parish youth minister. So I worked in a parish for five years. And that time of my life was so blessed because it was an adventure. My first year was awful because I made all kinds of terrible mistakes (laughs) that looking back on them, I'm like, wow, you actually said that you actually did that. You actually thought that that would work. And of course you do those things and you learn from them and they become so foundational, but that was a real gift. And toward the end of those five years though, I felt God saying, Hey, 
you need to step out of this. Hmm. And I responded practically, sure, uh, where? And God said, I'll tell you later. And oh. sometimes we have those moments in discernment where you get a real strong sense that I have mm-hmm. to move. Mm-hmm. But the Lord is saying, you got to trust me with the next step, though, because I can't give it to you right now. I just need you to take this step. And so I did. I went to my parish priest and said, I, I think I need to resign a year from now. And he said, OK, that's let's awesome. let's work Thanks with for doing that. that. Like that's and awesome. uh, like, let's transition. Let I feel like that's the case. And in the course of that, Life Teen posted this job for writing and curriculum development, which I was becoming passionate mm-hmm. about and really enjoyed. And I applied for it. And I think it was really close to a year to the day of me telling my parish priest, I'm going to resign a year from now. That Life Teen called and said, Hey, would you like this job? How soon can you be out in Phoenix? And I was like, Well, I think I need two weeks to pack my stuff. And, and that was it. Uh, so I started there and that was my first role with life team, which was a lot of fun, a lot of writing and just thinking about how do you help reach high school students and empower their youth ministers to do that through great resources. Mm, good for you. That's a heck of a great gift to have. I know when I wrote the, my first book, unlocking your parish writing was, uh, it's something I've continued to wrestle with. It doesn't come easy to me. It's not mm-hmm. natural to me. I'm in the process of finishing my second book, almost done, and I'm growing in the ability to write, but it's been an incredible exploration trying to figure out how to do that for me. And so to be able to have that gift, I'm just really envious, just letting you know. Yeah, I think my English teacher in high school would be surprised. In My, <laughs> my freshman English teacher, Mr. Scott, said one of the most honest things I've ever heard. It was my first experience with like radical candor. Okay. And I said something to the effect of I procrastinate and I always do well on my papers. And he looked at me, he was like, no, you don't. And I, it was just so funny that I thought I was just, that I was totally pulling the bull over his eyes. And he was like, I know every time that you wait too long to write a paper, I can tell. And, um, the thing was, I was getting a minuses, B pluses on those papers. So I was still doing well, but yeah. it was the first time that somebody challenged me that I can remember hmm. like, yeah, you're, you're good enough is maybe better than a lot of other people's, yeah. but for you, it's not, it's not up to par and you have to consider that. And I really was taken back by that. And I think about that sometimes of even when the good enough maybe is, is better than other folks. There's still something in the realm of stewardship, I think that yes. I am not honoring what God has given me by phoning it in. Even if I could phone it in and it could be better than other people, that's oh. not what God's asking me to do with that talent. I'm still burying it. Amen. Yeah. And I'll tell you, life to the full is not found in dialing it in, in any aspect, is it? And we can go not through a chance, no. of dialing it in, whether mm-hmm. it's as a priest, whether it's as a vice president of, parish services like we can go through ebbs and flows of energy levels of passion of focus and we have to find ways to pull up our socks and refocus and re-energize again to continue to to maximize the impact we can have with our gifts because if not it's just not a we stay in that place of complacency that's a slow spiritual death it is. And it's easy when people are talented. And I, you've probably seen this a ton. And when you're coach, you have people who get into positions because they're so gifted 
and they don't even necessarily realize it. I think that's one of the keys. When I talk to people, I say, if you want to know if you have a gift, tell me something that comes easy to you. That if I were to tell you that was a gift, your response to me would be really, really <laughs> not everybody's good at that. Not, I, I thought, because we downplay it. We're like, Oh, not everybody's, right. not everybody's good at speaking. Not everybody's good at writing. Not everybody's good at leading a team. Not everybody's good at building relationships. I, I thought that just came naturally it, to everybody. Right. No, it's, it's a gift for you. But the danger so of the gift is when we don't cultivate it because mm. sometimes we can phone it in. And if everybody around us is praising it and, and feels like it's so good and it's, it's better than maybe what other people can do because they're not gifted mm. there, yeah. we can slide into complacency. But complacency is followed by atrophy. And pretty soon that gift isn't a gift anymore. And what's worse is if we don't steward the gift well, all that God wanted us to do with that, all the ways he could have multiplied that talent, yes. don't ever come to fruition. They never bear fruit because we settled for good enough for us because it might've been better than other people's efforts. Mm -hmm. But God was like, I wanted to bear five and 10 and a hundredfold yeah. out of that gift. And you only mm -hmm. let me do a one for one. Right. Yeah. That I should keep you up at night. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I just want to say, I'll tell all of our listeners right now, I just need you to stop what you're doing, pick up your phone, uh, get on Instagram or Twitter and tweet. Complacency is followed by apathy. Uh, Joel Stepanek, like that's the that's the most tweetable thing ever. Like, it's just it's like <laughs> what stops you in your tracks. It's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, and like I say, I think we've all been there at different times. Sometimes that can be a sign mm -hmm. that the season that you're in now may be coming to an end, whether it's mm -hmm. your, you know, a job that you're in or place you're living or, or whatever it is, or a course that you've been on, it, it might be a sign mm -hmm. that, that some, a season is coming to an end and a new one's about to start. And sometimes I think when people feel that, and that is the case, sometimes they can hang on too long mm -hmm. you know, out of fear. Oh and, yeah. Right. And it's like, ah, um, and if you find yourself in that situation, if anybody finds themselves in that, it's like, just start praying about that. Like, Lord, give me clarity. Give me discernment. Seek mentors and start. Uh, but sometimes it's just a matter of you need a good swift kick in the pants. Uh, you mm -hmm. need to recommit. You need to find out uh, why is this? What's happening that that I'm losing my passion, zeal, and, and rediscover it? And, and both yeah. of those things are, are valid. And both of them take work. They do. They do. It's the constant work and discernment of personal, which is deeply tied to spiritual growth. Amen. I so, wish it were easier. <laughs> right? Give me the sign me up for the easy path to a, to a beautiful, fun, life giving experience of this world. Right? Um, what's so? What, what's been your path like? So to like that's a big role to be the vice president of payer services. Um, I'm guessing that you've had a trajectory of of leadership growth. Tell me a little bit about that. I attended this event called the Chick-fil-A leader cast. Now it's just oh, leader cast because Chick-fil-A doesn't sponsor it anymore. Okay. My first year at, at life team as the life support coordinator, uh, the leader cast does remote broadcasts. So you can go to the big event, which at that time was in Atlanta, but they do remote broadcasts at different places, picked up a local church, picked it up and sold tickets to it. And you, at first I'm like, how great can this be? You're going to watch something on a stream. It's a really cool event for the day. Yeah. But listening to the different, speakers and how they talked about leadership and how they talked about empowering a team and how that related to creativity and innovation, something woke up in me because I had worked at a director level at the parish and had been a leader and had taken my lumps in learning what that meant. Yes. And I always thought that was something you just figured out on your own. 
I was kind of of the leaders are born, not made. So either you got it or you don't mindset. And this opened my eyes to this whole new realm. But what broke my heart was listening to these people speak and seeing the disconnect between what they talked about and what happened in churches and feeling like, wow, like if we did some of these things, there could be something really impactful or powerful that would happen in churches mm-hmm. and apostolates if we listen to these practices. And then what broke my heart even more was seeing all the places that that stuff could connect and should connect, but wasn't. You know what the best form of leadership is? Servant leadership. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that I find that all over. If, if any one of you wishes to be great, you must be servant of all. Somebody said that, I think, <laughs> in the pages of the Gospels at some point. I'm like, why, how are they getting that over here in the for-profit world and in, you know, what we would call the secular world, Mm -hmm. but we're not like, that's a core principle. Mm -hmm. And that sort of started the trajectory of that idea. If if I have feel like I have a gift for leadership, which I did Mm -hmm. at that point, I've like, I've led good teams, but I can build on that gift and grow that gift. And I have a responsibility to do that. How, and where do I go? How do I do it? And where do I go to learn? And that's what kind of set me on the traje- trajectory to build that skill set of leadership. Um, as I worked through different roles at Life Teen, I became a director uh, about a year and a half after I was hired and got a small team of people. Yeah. And then over time was able to grow that team um, to several people and figure out how do you do this in a way that helps people do their best work, that honors the work that they're doing that provides them space to be creative and innovative, that promotes radical candor and open conversations mm. um, that creates a healthy work environment and then taking lumps along the way and still <laughs> learning and getting things wrong and asking for forgiveness. Those are all parts of it. And that it's been a real gift to do that. And now as I'm looking out in my role at pair services, a big question I ask is how do you help youth leaders and leaders mm. at parishes specifically in the realm of youth ministry, because that's our field, Yeah, understand some of these things so that they can create great team environments where we're reaching young people and we're creating healthy, safe spaces. Uh, and that's been a fun journey as well. Good for you. It's, it's hard to do. And I would say this to everybody, no matter where, if you're a manager, you're an employee, you're in sales, you're in ministry, you're in youth ministry, you're a pastor, you're um, sometimes it's really hard to dig into that when you don't feel like you're being led very well. Mm-hmm. Like when you yeah. feel like your leader isn't a leader at all, they're a boss and, and they're, they don't support, they tell, uh, they don't encourage, they criticize, uh, they, you know, you'd only hear from them when they have a problem or they want you to do something for them. It's that relationship. That's just, you feel like you're in a silo and nobody cares. And that's not uncommon period. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, if you get this flair for leadership, this, 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 you have the, you have the, the call and and you start to develop skills. Sometimes what can prevent that from growing is you're consist continually looking at (laughs) how you're being supported, how you're being led or not being led. And I always say to people, like, maybe, maybe the buck can stop with you. Like maybe you can Mm -hmm. be the person you wish you had as a leader. And even, even if you don't get it because so often in the beginning when i work with leaders there's they're frustrated with how they're being led mm-hmm. and, and and that pain that 
ache that they have for all the things that you talked about uh, in terms of what you try to provide for the people that, that that you work with on your teams, that ache just, it distracts them from hearing what God's calling them to do and just letting go of, of that disappointment and leaning into what's possible to be that person for others. Uh, yeah. It's I love that point. It is tough. I, I tell people that there are two works that are tied together that are exacting and thankless, uh, but so fruitful and so important parenting and leadership. Cause you can never, you never get let up, right? Those two areas, there is no phoning it in or time off. There is no, there's no, I just need to stand still for a second. Uh, I have three kids, eight, six, and seven weeks old. Oh, congrats. Thank you. It's exacting work, right? And it's thankless. Like when my daughter is throwing a temper tantrum the other day because her smoothie was made incorrectly, it wasn't the right consistency. And I don't know what Gordon Ramsay kid I'm raising that I'm making her a smoothie. And she's like, the consistency of this is wrong and the flavor is very unbalanced. But that's where we were at. That's thankless and it's frustrating. But if I'm not intentional about my parenting, I'm I'm not going to respond well in that moment, right? Even if yeah. I want to phone it in. Leadership's yeah. the same way. It requires intentionality. It's exacting. It's thankless. I think sometimes leaders are like, I want my my the people on my team to thank me and to praise me. And my advice mm -hmm. is like, don't ever expect that. It's nice when it happens. Sometimes it happens. Mm -hmm. But my team's job is not to affirm me. I pass affirmation down all the time. I pass feedback down all the time. But if I'm expecting those people to be like, you're such a good boss, you're such a good leader, you're so, thank you so much, that might happen. But if I expect it, I'm going to wind up resenting them because that's not their job to affirm me. And in mm -hmm. both of those things, as you said, there is a buck stops with me moment because not all of us have the best parents. And when we become parents, we look to our parents and say, well, they didn't parent this way and I can choose to do that or I can start a new generational path. Mm -hmm. Every leader has the same option. I can nice. lead the way I've been led that maybe hasn't been good, or even that I'm being led now, where I can say, no, a new branch starts with me. And the people underneath me, they're going to look when they become leaders and say, I want to be a leader like that person. Right. I got a good example of leadership. So we have the choice. Hmm. It's That's so cool. And I, as soon as you say that, a leader came to mind right away, like somebody in my life who was a great mm -hmm. boss, you know, a great manager right away. because. You you remember the people that brought mm -hmm. the best out in you, that brought the best out in your team, that brought people together, created created a sense of passion, hope, success, drive. Like that's when you feel fully alive. Well, certainly I do. And the people that create that space, you don't forget them. Well, I guess you don't no, forget the other don't. ones either, but for the wrong reasons. But it just, <laughs> you know, yeah. to be a great leader is a great goal. It's a mm -hmm. noble goal. Um, if you're in a position of influence. Be great. Yeah, yeah. it echoes. It echoes. It does. It does. And so share with me a little bit when it comes to the work that's being done to support youth ministers and parishes. It's like, what are some of the things they're up against? I have found that the biggest challenge that youth ministers face is that they do not exist, nor should they exist in a silo. And sometimes, oftentimes, the reason why youth ministry doesn't work at a church is because the greater culture of that church is not going to be, is just not supportive for what's being done. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, Ron, youth ministry in churches often becomes a hub of innovation. It can. And I think I it's because you've got kids that are cycling through every four years. 
youth culture is rapidly changing. The methods are changing. And so for people who work in that field, they have, a, I think, a greater freedom to fail or to, to re-energize things because every couple of years you're getting new students in. So there's nobody with a legacy mindset uh, other than maybe adult okay. volunteers. But yes. that's even a little bit easier to deal with because you're like, but teens, we got to reach the teens where they're at now. And everybody goes, yeah, you're right, we do. Uh, so you can be more innovative. You can be more creative. Uh, youth ministry in its most successful form requires the formation of a healthy team and healthy adults. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing youth ministry well, you're actually pulling in a lot of the elements of good leadership, of good team management, of creativity, of innovation. If you're trying to have a good youth ministry outreach, you probably need a diverse team and diverse teams that are led well can be more innovative. And, mm-hmm. But then you put that in the bigger context of a parish. Yes. And if that parish is not healthy, if it doesn't have a good parish, it, well, I'm if it doesn't have a, a, a supportive culture, because every organization mm-hmm. has culture in it, whether or not we tried to build it, right. um, it exists. That's where people get burnt out. That's where they mm-hmm. leave. That's where things fail. Uh, and that's, that's the biggest challenge I think we're up against because we can train youth ministers all day. We can do such a good job giving them really great resources to use. We can provide support and prayer but I'm not there. We're not there when they walk into somebody else's office um, or with their coworkers. And I think that that's a challenge that youth ministry faces and it's a bigger parish challenge. And so confronting that when you're limited, that's a tough one for us, but it's, it's, true. it's also a challenge that's worthy of being addressed. And there are other groups that are addressing it. And I think that that's what gives me hope for the churches. Like we have this small mm-hmm. slice of the pie, but there are other folks that are saying, well, how can we tackle mm-hmm. the big parish as a whole? But that's, it rises and falls on that. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, that's one of the reasons that that we began doing what we're doing. I remember working with Alpha years ago, discovering Alpha and mm-hmm. introducing Father James to Alpha and him running with it, then us coming together and just exploding at St. Benedict Parish. Um, one of the things that that I felt really compelled by is that Alpha is only a small part of a bigger puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I was through the mistakes that we made, and there were a gazillion of them, and most of them I made twice. Uh, we are learning what doesn't work the hard way. And so often being in positions to coach other churches and, and share with them some answers to some of the questions they were they were wrestling with. And and what I saw was you know, alpha can stink. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not. It's not magic. Yeah. And, and and the reason it's not successful ninety nine times out of a hundred is because it's a seed that's planted in toxic soil. Mm. And yeah. so people want the fruit that comes from that seed, but they don't understand it's not just the seed. There's a relationship the seed has to the soil. And if you're not mm. cultivating good soil, no matter what seed it is, whether it's alpha, whether it's life teen, whether, you know, whatever it is, it's not going to bear the fruit that shows on the package. And that's not the problem of the seed. It's the problem of the soil. And leaders have a responsibility and opportunity to make that soil healthy. But so and often we just focus on the seeds. I And to do the work that is required to make the soil healthy, because as you're saying that, I, I we need to drive this home for the folks listening. <laughs> and <laughs> I have a parable for us. <laughs> let me tell you a parable, uh, <laughs> agrarian in nature, as our Lord would have shared them. 
And it's a real life thing. So it's a parable, but it really happened to me. Sure. Several years ago, I started this garden uh, because my son at Lowe's, I'm a new homeowner. I bought my son at Lowe's because I got to get homeowner stuff. He grabs a couple packs of seeds without me realizing it, throws them up on the register. And I'm like, okay, there's a little area in the backyard of my new home where you could plant a garden. Let's do this thing. Let's grow a couple. Th- It'll be fun to do with my kids. Mm-hmm. Growing a garden is hard. It's not just as simple as putting the seeds in the ground. You got to like do some stuff with the soil. There's pests that come in. Um, so we grew some squash. We grew some tomatoes. We grew some radishes. Radishes are really easy to grow. I learned those are super simple. Good to know. Um, and I grew some pepper plants. I like hot peppers. So I, I planted some pepper plants in there as well. Jalapenos and some heirloom habanero plants that I bought. That's a heck of a garden you got going there. It was epic. And I learned all this really cool stuff. We loved it. The kit, it was awesome. I learned like pests come uh, and like, oh, these are squash beetles. Here's how you do these squash beetles. And I learned all this stuff, not unlike leadership. There are things that come up, you learn on the fly, you ask for help. I had friends who I, I got mentorship in my garden. And there's this one habanero plant that I really, really wanted to grow. And I sustained it through several Phoenix winters in Phoenix, those can be those can be plants that survive. They don't have to die. Yeah. And after I planted it, like three years later, nourished this plant, helped it grow. It's this big habanero tree at this point. And it has buds all over it. And I'm like, finally, I'm going to get some good fruit out of this. So three there were years cats, it took you to grow this. Three years. Okay. But there were cats in my neighborhood because my neighbor, several houses down, takes care of feral cats. So I'm on a couple of cats. There are dozens of cats that roam our neighborhood. And the cats were using my garden as a litter oh, box. No. And I was like, no big deal. I just scoop it out, right? I just scoop it out of the dirt, scoop it out of the dirt. Yeah. And I tried to find some ways to get them not to just come to the garden. I shoved forks in it and did all this stuff. And sometimes they stayed away, but I was just like, it's fine. I'll just scoop out the, you know, when it happens, yeah. I'll just scoop it out. And now I got fruit. I got habaneros growing. And my wife goes, you can't eat those. I'm like, what do you mean I can't eat those? Of course I can. They're not in the ground. It's like, no, no way. If cats are using the garden as a litter box, there's toxins in there. I'm like, let me Google it. Ron, if a cat or a couple other animals use your garden no. as a litter box, no. the soil is toxic. It's unusable. It gets absorbed into those plants. It doesn't matter if it's in the soil or out of the soil. That garden is, is unusable. It is toxic. I thought and manure so, was good for soil. I mean, I, here's the guy who knows not nothing about dog, dog, human, and cat. Those things, mm-hmm. if they are in your garden, will get absorbed by your plants and transferred to the fruit. And the key was my wife looked at me and she goes, okay, let me, because I'm like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. She goes, tell, would you serve our kids something from that garden? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. No, but you would eat it. That's the important thing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's a great question. Here's the kicker. And here's the parable. (laughs) If I wanted to plant in that garden again, I had to remove all of the dirt and I researched how much I had to dig down a couple of feet and I hauled probably over a ton. No joke. One afternoon I spent four or five hours digging out the garden, digging out all the dirt, throwing it in garbage bags, because until I did that, nothing was going to grow there. It just wasn't, it wasn't going to be healthy. And in our churches and in our organizations, there are people who are defecating in your culture wow. and it's toxic. 
And here's the challenge is for a long time as leaders, this is what I realized in this moment, digging out all this dirt in the garden. I was like, what we do is we do what I do. I'm just going to pull out the little pieces. I'm going to deal with the symptoms. I'll pull it out. I'll pull it out. I'll pull it out. I'll ignore it. I'll pull it out. But I'm not going to do anything about the cat. And I'm not realizing that everything is now toxic. And the only way some for sometimes for us to deal with this and to plant anything good there is a total overhaul of maybe systems, maybe people, or maybe maybe programs before I plant seed there. Because the fruit that we're that we're creating, even for like, oh, look, it's bearing fruit is actually it might actually be toxic. And that's why we can get ministries and people and apostolates and businesses that seem to do great work that are profitable, that bear fruit. And then years from now, we find out it was toxic. And some of the fruit is still good. But what often happens? We realize that that was actually more destructive. And we hear stories about the about that organization or that that company or that ministry. Like, wow, there was some bad stuff happening. So Joel, the parable, Joel. let the parable, let he who has ears hear the parable of the garden. Oh, I am going to get the Bible rewritten and we're putting that one in. That is so <laughs> good. That has so many applications. I could not agree more. Wow. I hope that that's what gets put in the beginning of the podcast when our producer edits this and puts it out on social. That story, that parable is so good. It's so true. And we, we deal with the symptoms. Um, and it's work. Like for right. me, digging out all that dirt was messy. It was hard. Mm. But if I wanted a garden, I had to do it. And sometimes right. as leaders, that is just the reality. I know that you don't want to fire people. I know that you don't want to close down programs. I know that you don't want to do the difficult work of culture formation. It's messy. It's hard. It, it's exhausting. But if you want to bear good fruit, you've got to do it. Oh, it's so rewarding. Right? What's the alternative? Mm -hmm. You know, you're yeah. people garbage, like, like mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you get healthy people come to Christ through some miracle uh, and then they come to church and we have, we have people leading that shouldn't be leading, influencing that shouldn't be influencing mm -hmm. people in ways that we shouldn't be treating people. It sucks the joy, the chemistry, the passion out of everything we do, but our theology is correct. Yeah. You know, what we do and how we do it is correct, but mm -hmm. I think there's more to it than just being correct. Mm -hmm. and, and it's all those other pieces that we don't sometimes deal with because it's tricky. I think part of the problem is, too, if I could just call a spade a spade, is the priests aren't in their parish very long. Mm -hmm. That and is so one of like, the biggest poverties we experience. Yeah, they've been here yeah. longer than me. So who am I to do anything? Well, and so I see that perspective like that's mm -hmm. kind in some sense. And then, you know, you're going to be leaving soon. And so it's like, well, I bother. Like, why would I disrupt this whole community as dysfunctional as it is? At least it's still meeting. At least they're still doing stuff. At least they still have the sacrament. And to be honest with you, it's like as a church, we don't even care. Mm -hmm. We just cycle these guys around like 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 it doesn't matter. It matters disproportionately. It matters. Leadership matters so much. It's unbelievable. And mm -hmm. yet we haven't really, I think we are starting to wrap our heads around it, though, to be honest. I don't think that's a phenomenon that we're going to see much longer because I think too many churches are going to just flat out die. Mm -hmm. And and I think eventually we're going to have to understand that leadership matters a lot and that keeping people in long-term leadership and teaching them and cultivating them to be great leaders and be fruitful if they have the desire, because there's plenty of guys that right, right. literally have zero desire, in which case cycle them around and let those churches die. Unfortunately, it's not my hope. It's not my wish, but it's going to be the fruit, the natural fruit of our inaction. Um, but those people that do have passion, 
and set them up for long-term success and support them because their fellow priests aren't necessarily going to give them a standing ovation when they start outperforming them in transformed lives and people start no. talking about how amazing it is. Like that's not necessarily always the most supportive group of people. Um, I don't think they do it intentionally, but it ends up being what happens. And so bishops have to wrap their head around that and they have to have the courage to recognize some people have passion and capacity and some people are burnt out and really are just going to call it in. And as unfortunate as it, that is, and I know we have to love them all, we need to learn how to differentiate and support in ways that we can, you know, figure out who to give five talents to, who to give two talents to, and who to give one talent to. Yeah. Well, we, we talked everybody the same. 100%. Because we talked at the, at the start of our conversation about giftedness. Mm -hmm. And I love that you say, you know, some, some priests are going to be leaders and some aren't going to be interested in that. But we don't have a system right now that allows for that, that allows for the guys who the Lord is calling into the priesthood are like, I just want to, I want to deliver the sacraments to God's people. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. Uh, can I do that? We're like, you can, while leading a multi-million dollar corporation and managing a staff and doing development and setting a vision. And we also have a building campaign that you're going to be going to be yeah. leading as well. And three and you schools. Got, and three schools. And you got these guys who are like, but I, I, I really just want to do the sacraments, you know, or you, or you have people who are like, I would love to be just in a school. Like, let me be the, let me be yes. the chaplain. I will do so good there. And we're like, yeah. you can, but in addition to the school, you're going to do it, it, it because, but it's hard because we have parishes and we're like, we need pastors in those parishes, but maybe there's another model that allows us to honor the gifts and talents of the men God calls into the priesthood while also recognizing that not all of them have a giftedness nor a desire to right. be a leader. And it's kind of unkind. in that way. It's unkind. It's unkind. It? Yeah. Like, you know, it's so unkind. And, and I see these guys, so many of them, they're just stellar human beings with mm -hmm. great intent, great heart, working their brains out and talk about thankless in a lot of cases. But they haven't been, I mean, they don't learn how to lead in the seminary and they don't mm -hmm. learn how to lead when they get out of the seminary. They're too busy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet we give them these humongous mandates, these ginormous responsibilities. I was talking to a priest yesterday, he came to one of the events that I held. He has 12 churches. Let me put oh my that goodness. in perspective for you, Joel. The Archdiocese of Halifax has 20 and we have an archbishop. This guy has 12 parishes and he's a parish priest. It's like, you're basically a bishop yeah. if you lived in Halifax. <laughs> right. That's astounding. I'm surprised they haven't just said, listen, we're just going to, you're going to be auxiliary. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? We'll split this I, up. Yeah. Yet we haven't addressed leadership as a thing, really. Mm -hmm. But again, I think we're on the front end of that. I think it's happening. I, I see so many priests in the work that I do courageously getting engaged in, in uh, this long-term relationship with me to be Go into deep dive coaching, which exposes a lot. Talk about candor. Candor is required. Yeah. It exposes a lot of gaps. And yet, not for condemnation, but so that we can deal with reality and begin to, well, dig up the dig up the dig up the soil that maybe not be quite quite be so good. One hundred percent. And begin yeah. putting a foundation in there that we can build a movement on of God's grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, mm -hmm. his healing. Like, it's so exciting. And what I'm seeing, Joel, is these priests are, are rediscovering the joy of their priesthood. And I, ooh, that's never going to get old for, for me to help these that's men. That's amazing. Are, yeah. 
so much pressure, so much stress, a lot of it unspoken. They don't complain. They're magnanimous human beings. They're just heroes in, in every sense of the word. And and yet, you know, bishops don't know how to support priests, unfortunately. Most of them, maybe some do. I haven't met it, you know, I haven't met a lot of them yet, but but maybe maybe that's growing. And as a result, these men are being crushed. And, and, you know, I'm thinking to myself as bishops, I'm thinking to myself, you're asking for my son, be worthy of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. My, that's good. That's good. Yeah. My son. Don't ask me for my son and then be a terrible leader. Don't you dare. You know, and, and, and I see vocations going down. Well, you know what? I don't know that we deserve a lot of them, to be honest with you. Jesus does. But if the church doesn't start getting leadership right and really right and really leaning into it, where our vocations are going to continue to decline. But I think the priesthood is the most amazing vocation on the planet. And I think we can get it right. I think we can get it radically right. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be focusing on people and, and focusing on these men and supporting them in ways that actually make sense and feel like support and then equipping them and, and growing them. And I do see diocese doing this. I really do. Mm-hmm. It's exciting, but it's long work, Joel. It's it is long work. It's not. And that's the thing. It's exacting long work. And people have to be willing to engage in the work. And it requires humility. I think that's so foundational is to say, and I hate this about leadership. Like, uh, Just to be completely candid, there are moments where I just say, haven't I arrived yet? Like, do I still have to be learning these lessons? I hate, I don't like it. I hate it. But that's, that's the reality of humility is saying there's never going to be a moment where you arrive. There's not going to be a moment, you know, everything. There's not going to be a place you have it all together. And you're still going to have the really difficult lessons that are hard to learn. And once you accept that there's growth, but get it. I mean, it's not like it's such an easy thing to say, we'll just have humility and accept it. But in practice, I mean, it's, Saying I got it wrong and I'm sorry and I messed up mm. never is easy. No, necessary. Ability based trust. We talk about mm-hmm. that being one of the four non negotiables of of picking people for your leadership team. That's vulnerability based trust. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're bearing your soul at every given moment as if it's a support group. It means that you know how to own that you're willing to own your stuff when mm-hmm. you've messed up, apologize, and ask for forgiveness. And that takes a big person. You know, sometimes we just hope nobody noticed or or we feel like, wow, we're too important. We're too busy to go back and make something right. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, actually, exactly what you're talking about, Joel, is one of the key ingredients to creating a high performance team. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes a great deal of humility because, you know, years ago, and I often joke at St. Benedict, we, we really, um, we turned the culture around overnight in the staff. Yeah. Continued to turn the culture around. Um, over time at the parish and it was going great Mm -hmm. at the parish level, not so much at the staff level. But one of the things that we talked about was the difference between a healthy culture and a toxic culture. Yeah. And if culture is created by two things, what you reward and what you tolerate, then Mm -hmm. let's, let's be very clear on what we're going to reward and what we're both, what we're all looking for in terms of behaviors and team. And then let's talk about what undermines that and let's be very specific. And so we made a humongous list of both. Yeah. And I said, you know, the, the problem is like I'm 100% on board for doing everything I can do to create a culture that's that's this, that's healthy. But the problem is sometimes I can be toxic. Yeah. And I love that you brought up. Yeah. I love that yeah, you brought sorry, up ahead, reward, yeah. reward and consequence. That is it's what we reward and what we punish. That's yeah. what starts to create expectations and culture. Mm-hmm. But where I think a lot of leaders don't realize they become toxic or that they're the ones... Right messing up the garden 
is they only think of the explicit rewards. I gave that person, I'm giving bonuses. We have a, we have time off. I'm not rewarding any bad behavior. Why do we still have a bad culture? Well, what are you implicitly rewarding? Yeah. What are you tolerating? Yeah. What are you tolerating? What do you, what do you, or like, I think a great example is like work time in ministry. uh, And this happens outside of ministry too, but like overtime, how is that treated? And how do you, you reward or uh, tolerate or have consequences for that or, or put boundaries up? So like, uh, I, I have no story of somebody who, um, had their pastor reach out to them at like one in the morning with a question and clearly they didn't respond guys a night owl sends yes. it, you know, yeah. the next day he runs into this person. He's like, why didn't you respond to my message? Now that's a very clear, there's a consequence for an unhealthy behavior, but then there's the flip side where we'd always realize of like the person responds right away at 1am they're up to, they're a night owl. It's the youth minister. They're up late. And the pastor is, Hey, thanks for getting back to me so quick. I really appreciated that. You just rewarded that behavior because in that person's mind, they're like, Ooh, I did something good. Even though you, you didn't, re- you're not trying to reward behavior for working late. Mm. And then it gets more problematic as other people see those implicit rewards of affirmation of favor. Mm. The fact that maybe you start to be, uh, recalled on to do other things. And we say things like, Oh, that person's so reliable. They're so fast to get back to you. They're mm. so fast to get back to you. I really appreciate that. And everybody else around the table knows. Yeah, because they're working on the weekends and they're working late at night. And like, I can't do that because I have a family. Am I supposed to do that? I read a story about Amazon and that's one of the things that happened in their cultures. They started to realize that like, if you wanted to win, you needed to be available at all hours, 24 seven. You need to be wow. the first on the draw for the email. You need... Now, nobody's saying that. That's not explicitly getting rewarded. Nobody's getting bonuses based on that. Nobody's getting rewards like congratulations, gold star, fastest email response. But they knew there was an implicit reward there. So even though managers would say, no, 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 we don't expect people to do that. We're not telling people to do that. That's not a rule, but it is a rule. It's a ghost rule and it's written into your culture. And those are the things that are dangerous as leaders. And they happen all the time in the church. And we, we justify it. But it's sometimes not what you're explicitly rewarding. It's the implicit rewards that are really driving your culture. Ghost Ghost rules that are written into your culture. What a line that is. It's like what, again, what a a nugget to take back to a staff and and maybe reflect on and get people to explore it, open it up because we all have them. Yeah. Just aware of them. Every organization does. I asked my team that a while ago. I was like, what ghost rule? And I explained what ghost rules were. I gave them some time to think about it. And so I'd love to hear what they are, because um, if, if it's a ghost rule, that's good. We need to enshrine it. We have right. to make it explicit. If we say, hey, right. this is actually kind of something that's developed that we think is a code of conduct or behavior that helps us function well, but it's ambiguous. Nobody knows if it's real, but it's good. Well, let's make it explicit. Let's love let's it. cement that. Let's do that. If it's bad, we have to exercise it. We have to get rid of that ghost. Uh, you either give it flesh or you cast it out. And we came up with some things. We're like, oh, yeah, those are ghost rules. Uh, those are things that people don't get. And um, and we have to be explicit about that mm-hmm. to, to cast it out. We cast it out with our words. We say, hey, this is what the expectation is. This is what it is not. And then you you live by that um, wow. and you, you hold that to a standard. You know, uh, we had a conversation with um, uh, with leaders a while ago, and it was kind of a fun conversation about like, 
is there an expectation to get back to people late or whatever? And in the course of the conversation, people realized that everybody was doing it. They were like, it's just really hard when people reach out like after hours, I feel like I need to respond, like I'm obligated. And in the conversation, we all realized that we had done that to people. Yeah, but I'm on a plane. And it's like, I know it's like 830 at night, and you don't need to respond. But I'm like, but I'm doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody kind of stepped back and said, okay, maybe we all have to check, check this a little bit. Wow. Those conversations are good. That's fascinating. You know, I know myself, I, uh, I remember I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry and there was a doctor giving a, uh, a presentation and it was so funny. I've never heard anybody do this before. And I wish I could remember exactly what she said and how she said it, but let me just give you the gist of it. In the presentation, she was talking about some of the work she was doing or whatever. And she stopped because she knew what this was implying. And she looked at everybody and she says, I'm a workaholic. That's right. And where would the world be without a workaholic? Nobody complains about workaholics because it gives other people the opportunity to live the life they want. And we're actually quite happy doing it. Thank you very much. (laughs) And then she kept on talking about what she was talking about. And I laughed my hat off because it was obvious that that's would have been what it required to get the results that she got. But then she actually made it. She spoke into it, which I thought was interesting. And so there are people that have different levels of energy. And so there are going to be people, and I know because I, I, I've led them, I've worked with them, that they're really high thinkers and have low amount of energy. And then you've got mm-hmm. people that are really good at doing that have high energy because they don't burn a lot of time thinking. Yeah. And so their output looks very different in the context of a work environment. And so, you know, some, you know, if it'd be like, if for some people, like a racehorse needs to race. And just because mm-hmm. you've got a whole different group of horses, they don't all have to run the same or, or, or walk the same path. You've got some trail horses for kids and you've got some racehorses to win the Kentucky Derby. And, and some are going to go hard and, and that might feel and look weird for the people that actually are trail riders. And, yeah. and so what are your thoughts on that? I think that, well, that's part of leadership is the individualized attention that we give to every person and recognizing how those people fit together. Mm. Again, a place that I'm like, we have that in the church. We have a framework for that. Mm. The body is many parts, uh, but one body is all parts and eye is every part of foot is every part of hand. No, but we all need to work together. And organizationally, we would say everybody has a different role, brings gifts and talents. And as a leader, I need to understand what those are so I can help Mm. people optimize them. And additionally, put up guardrails so that my bias doesn't enter in for the work styles that I prefer and the people who are like me, because that always happens. I'm like, if I'm a I'm a I'm a high worker, I'm very energetic, I'm really driven and uh, I'm kind of like I can be like the racehorse. So I like to run along people who are like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that my my implicit bias can come into play and then start to be like, Oh, those are such good. Those are the big contributors. Cause they're like me, right. but the high thinker who oh, isn't necessarily like, I need that need, person. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I need the person. I don't, I'm not, I don't like to do the nitty gritty of the details. Right? right. But I need that person. Yeah. And I also have to be able to look at their gifts and talents and recognize how they're contributing and how valuable that is. But what happens is a lot of leaders look for the people like themselves and it's an implicit bias of like, I'm going to, I really am going to praise, I'm going to give them opportunities. But if you have a team that looks just like you, you don't have a team. (laughs) I don't know what that's called. Cloning farm or something. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's not good. Um, And so I think that there's a, a need 
to do that and by putting up guardrails on yourself and your bias and then on those other people, because it can be frustrating for, for other yeah. folks if you're not helping those work styles gel together and, mm. you know, providing a framework for communication and understanding. So there's lots of assessments people do, DISC, Myers-Briggs, Working Genius is a new one that Table Group has out yeah. that help people understand, oh, like that's where you're gifted. And I'm, I, I think the assessments are best where they show where somebody is gifted, where I'm weak. That's where you're good. Mm-hmm. I'm not good there. And if we don't work together, neither one of us is going to be good because other people can get resentful. I'm working all the time. I'm a workaholic. Why aren't you a workaholic? Well, because that person's doing their job, but here's where they're contributing where you're not. Absolutely. Oh, okay. That person does ask big questions. I never think about the big questions. I'm just trying to do stuff, you know? <laughs> We need you to give me the place where I need to go. Yeah. And but then you have the a, relationship people making the whole work environment just so much fun. And so, you yeah. know, the people that everybody goes to when there's a struggle and mm-hmm. something's going on, like there, there it is just, it's so diverse. And actually that's literally the work that I do at the beginning mm-hmm. when I begin working with a pastor and his team is, is figuring out, okay, if we're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, that's cool. But if we don't have a language to further differentiate what that means and recognize mm-hmm. our diversity and appreciate it, then we're not going to get very far. Uh, and so that's the work that we always do at the beginning of coaching. Uh, and everybody always loves it. Why wouldn't they? Uh, mm-hmm. Because as you get to understand yourself, you get to understand God because he made you in his yeah. image. And it is really exciting. Uh, and to understand that, and then you have your your balcony and your basement uh, effects of your strengths. And, mm-hmm. and so taking responsibility for those in, the, in terms of the impact you have on others just makes it a, an emotionally safe place or a psychologically mm-hmm. safe place uh, to work. And that's where people thrive. That's where they get creative. And that's where they they can thrive spiritually, too. You it's know, true. You get yeah. bullies in, in Christian environments, in churches. You get bullies. You get people that behave in ways that shut people down. It's not... <laughs> It's not like only nice people are in churches and all the bad people are in the secular world. Far from it. But it's the exact same. Yeah. And, and there's a profound danger in that in the church. I think like that's the added element is we're not just dealing with people's livelihood, which we are. We're dealing with their spiritual care mm-hmm. and their spiritual maturity. And there's something really precious and sacred about that. And you see how devastating it can be when that doesn't happen. I think yes. recently I finished the podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which discusses that particular church uh, in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. Uh, people could go mm. listen. It's a long series, but it is essentially that very idea of like what happens when you have an environment that's supposed to care for people spiritually. And by extension, there's people who work there who are paid, who, who do the work of ministry. They're not paid as much as counterparts in the non-church world would be, but they're doing it because there's something bigger at stake. And you have bad leadership. How that doesn't just make somebody say, oh, I hated that job. But it can make somebody say, oh, I hated that job. And I don't know how I feel about Jesus anymore. Yeah. That's crippling. And that's where religious leaders especially have a double responsibility because every leader has to care for the people that they've been entrusted with. Mm-hmm. But as a spiritual leader, your decisions, your actions can have spiritual ramifications too. And that provides a whole different maze for people to navigate because it can, if we're unaware of it, we can make some poor decisions. But if we become way too concerned about it, 
in a way that actually isn't kind, but becomes nice, that's just as bad. Amen. That's when we leave the wrong people in the wrong positions. Joel, I'm telling you what, I could not have more fun talking to you. I, I knew that you loved leadership, but I was looking forward to our conversation. I didn't know I would have as much fun as I've had. This has been a treat. There are so many gems. I've Honestly, of all the episodes, this has got to be one of the best ones for, for staffs and teams to listen to and then talk about. And you might have to break it down into 15-minute segments because I think mm-hmm. there's just so much that we've covered today. That was So we'll have to do this again for sure. Tell me a little bit about that podcast you're talking about and how our listeners might be able to check that out. Yeah, you can find uh, the rise and fall of Marcel was done by Christianity today. It's a sobering look at leadership um, within a church environment. Uh, it's I think it's a well done podcast. It's worthy of reflection. It's going to take you some time to chunk through the last episode is like three and a half hours long. Love that. Love that. So well, thank thank you so much. And 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 for those people, again, we started talking about life teen and then we just got off on leadership, which is just so <laughs> fun. Clearly, we're both passionate about it. Um, and and you know, if you're a, a listener and a leader and and you don't have a, a ministry for high school students, it's for high school students, right? High school and middle school, yeah. High school and middle school, then then look up life teen and and uh, we'll include their their website in the in the show notes. And look them up and, and and see if you can't partner with somebody in your church who would be willing to get behind this and start pioneering this. Because if if we as churches are not cherishing our parishioners' most valuable assets, they will leave um, mm-hmm. because they have to. We don't give them a choice. You know, they need a place where they can explore Jesus with peers in a language that they can relate to in an environment and energy wise that, that is suitable for that age demographic. And, and we can do that. Mm-hmm. So reach out to that amazing machine. Final thoughts, Joel, as we wrap up. I think that again, if you're a leader and this is my final encouragement, if you're a leader, it is a worth work doing it is a work worth doing. Well, it's a work worth doing with humility. You need to have humility. It's an exacting work, but it is a beautiful work. And at um, the end of our lives, I think it was the, a former CEO of Coca-Cola. I believe he's the one who said this. He had said that, uh, so you can fact check me on this one. He said at the end of his life, God is going to ask him for an account of his stewardship as the leader of Coca-Cola. This is not a church leader. This is not a pastor. This is a guy who's running a secular company. He's saying, when I die, God's going to look at me and say, how did you do leading those people? Did you make their lives better? Did you help them grow? Did you create a, a place that people could thrive? How'd you do with that? When we are leaders, especially in the church, but any leader, at the end of our lives, God is going to ask us to render an account of our stewardship of who we were as leaders. And it should be our goal. And uh, that should keep us up at night. Our momentum mori of leadership to be the one that comes and says, here's tenfold what you gave me. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Joel. It's been an absolute treat and honor to have you on the podcast. Great to grow in friendship. And thank you to all your listeners who've been listening or watching on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, I just encourage you to hit the thumbs up and subscribe. Uh, Please leave a comment, ask a question, uh, rate the podcast. All that stuff helps. We really appreciate it. God bless you. And thank you all for all you're doing to make the world a better place. God bless. I want to encourage you as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.